are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are The Addiction Doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are so excited today. We have Wendy Francis joining us. We are just thrilled because she is going to talk to us about emotional overeating and how that ties in with food addiction. It's an honor to have Wendy with us today. Wendy Francis, MS, RD, CPC, is a pioneer in her field of food psychology. She's a best-selling author. She's a recognized speaker, podcast host, and facilitative entrepreneur, currently operating as the owner of four distinct businesses. In the past, Wendy ran a full-time private practice, which was with full within the first six months of opening and operated at a 100% refrigerator rate and specialized in eating disorders and disordered eating patterns for 18 years. After that, she transitioned to working more virtually and developing distinct businesses with food psychology as the backbone. She is a registered and licensed dietitian who holds a graduate degree in counseling and education and certifications in trauma, eating disorders, NLP, grief counseling, DISC or DIC, DISC, life coaching and business coaching. Wendy has worked as a business coaching consultant for Tony Robbins. I'm interested to hear about that, Wendy. For the past 29 years, Wendy's distinct advantage resides in her relentless passion for transformative change and her courage and commitment to her why and her client's why. This combined with her clinical and innovative psychological background enables her individual clients, entrepreneurs, employees and businesses to make definitively permanent changes, accelerating professional, personal, and financial growth exponentially. So personally, Wendy loves spending time with her three amazing children, playing tennis, doing yoga, enjoying many outdoor sports, being actively involved in her community, and relishing in her friendships. You can all listen to Wendy's podcast at Overcoming Emotional Eating on Apple's podcasts, or find out more about Wendy and what she does at www.wendyfrancis.com. So we're delighted to have Wendy here. We're really excited and honored to have her expertise on the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's always funny to hear that stuff. I'm like, wow, that was, gosh, (laughs) who did that? (laughs) Well, you deserve it. You just take it all in and say, yep, that's me. I did all of that. It's all good. It's all good. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we're really interested in talking to you about the intersection of of addiction and food. And I think Darlene has a lot of questions lined up. So we'll get going. As introduction. So tell us a little bit, how did you get into this field? Like, I mean, this is a passion of yours. And so Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, it's a good question and, and one I get asked a lot. And it, it's as the story goes, right? We each have our own stories of where we've come from. Um, but I was really interested in psychology when I was younger. I was raised by a single mother who was an alcoholic, uh, who has schizoaffective disorder and a number of other diagnoses. I was a single only child raised by a single mother with all of that. That being said, I lived psychology, right? Like that's how I made it to be alive today, (laughs) was figuring out my environment and understanding how to be a chameleon and understanding what diagnoses were like before they were diagnoses. The reality of that is then, so I had a passion for psychology, I didn't know it. I went into undergrad, like we all do, and I think, oh, I'm going to be a psychologist. That's what I'm going to do. 
and so I walked into my introductory to nutrition course at Westchester University. And I thought, well, nutrition is interesting. I was an athlete. I play field hockey. Let me learn. So sure enough, as the story goes, I was taking this intro nutrition course and I came upon uh, an eating disorder unit. There was like a one page highlight in my nutrition book. And I said, wow, this is so cool because it's like psychology and food. And at that time, dietitians were just starting to get into eating disorder work. I didn't really want to, I didn't really want to be a dietitian. Like I liked the food part, but I really liked, I had this weird passion immediately for like the relationship between food and our emotions. And so I went up to my professor whom I didn't know at the time was the head of the department. And I said, this one page highlight is so cool. Like I want to do this. And I was 20 years old. And he was like, you can do whatever you want. And I will tell you how to do it. And so lo and behold, you know, things just came together. And I started on my path at that point. Little did I know that during my college, as many people in college, I was in a sorority and exposed to a number of women at the time that had multiple facets of eating disorders and uh, understood more and more about that realistically. So as my journey continued, I only got more and more schooling from personal experience and then more and more from professional experience. So that's how I stumbled upon it realistically. That is amazing. It is fast. I am fascinated by it as well. And Mm -hmm. I feel like this is such a, maybe it's just because it's such a deficit in medicine still. I, I, I mean, Paul, I think you agree. We just don't get the education, especially how the psychology and how that ties in with food. One of the questions, and this is something that even I don't even know that we understand fully. When does a person cross from emotional overeating to food addiction? And how do we really define that? I mean, I think we run into it and we aren't diagnosing it properly and missing it? It, It's a good question. And I do think it's one that we have to consider, right? I, I, because when you talk about emotional overeating, the reality is, is that, you know, that that's eating out of emotion, right? And that can become habit and, and habits can be broken, right? Like behavior patterns, right? Behavior change can, can be broken. It can become emotionally driven. And, and with that, we can work with that. And if someone's willing to work, we can work with that. Where the line then becomes is when does it become that a- addiction? When does it become something that somebody can't break or, or needs, or there's a brain chemistry piece to it or, or a physiological piece? to it that we have to figure out realistically. And what I've done for so many years is I think the reality is, is, is trying to understand it with an individual first from, I don't love diagnoses. I never have. I understand them. I know why we have them. What I do know is that it puts a label on people's identity and on their soul that that's a stamp. And I think we have to be careful. So I have always tried to handle it from the emotional and behavioral construct first. And if we can't get that, well, then we need to go further with it. I've heard too many clients say that they were sugar addicts or food addicts. And to me, then that label is determining 
how you choose your food. And that becomes a problem because you have to eat all day. We can't be abstinent from food. I mean, that's like a big difference between the other facets of addiction, drugs and alcohol, for example, right? I am a big proponent of abstinence from drugs and alcohol. I, I, I don't think you can dabble realistically, but with food, you have to. You don't, have a, you don't have a choice, right? So so I, I think where the line is drawn is if somebody moves into a place or a space where they are so hopeless and so helpless that they can't get a handle on it in the other dimensions, then that's where we have to look at what could be going on. A lot of times, however, what I see underneath that addiction, if we go there, is severe and significant trauma. And that's what we have to address because I don't believe we treat trauma right here in our country. So true. So are you saying, Wendy, that find at the root of most emotional or all emotional eating is trauma or at the root of where emotional eating crosses over to out of control eating, eating with negative consequences, etc., is kind of like similar to substance use addiction that is highly correlated with trauma, or is it both? It's both. I, I've seen both when it comes to emotional overeating. There's a lot of trauma that's running through our eating patterns. A lot, whether it's anorexia, bulimia, compulsive overeating, emotional overeating, there's a lot of, of trauma that's running rampant. At the core, I, I believe we could call it an inability to want to feel our feelings, which sounds so simple, but it's not in our country. Like, it's just not. We don't like to feel our feelings. We don't like to express them. We're not taught to do it. So that theme runs you know, through all of these different facets of food and eating. And I think the reality is where, and then you've got the trauma piece, which can run like a milieu for all of those as well. The difference, I believe, if someone is going in an area that I'm, I'm thinking, okay, wait, we might have something a little bit more is really about time and intensity and how often they're doing it, how much and how much they can't get away from it, or they feel like they can't get away from it. And then I'm looking at, okay, what, what, what are they getting out of this? How come they can't get out of this? Can we shake it a little bit? If they can't shake it just a little bit, then I'm questioning some other things. So what's the, what is it? Why do we emotionally eat? I mean, this is kind of a basic question, but why do we eat in order to not feel like, what is that about? Is that, does that come from a neurochemical part of our brain or is that learned behavior from childhood or infancy or what, what do you think about that? I think it depends on the individual because I've, I've seen so many different things lead up to patterns of emotional overeating. Uh, the reality is, you know, I've seen, so it can be uh, a psychodynamic background. So for example, the, the woman or the man, every time they fell and scraped their knee, their parents gave them an ice cream cone, right? That's like kind of classic, right? So now as they get older, they feel some pain, they get an ice cream cone. So, so we, we, that, we see that a ton. And the reality is, do we always teach our kids to express their feelings? That's, that's hard. It's hard work being a parent. And it's really hard to teach that component, right? So that's, one facet, realistically, when we look at emotional eating, right, the inability to express emotions, kind of to put the salve on the wound with the food, it, it feels better. So there's a whether it be a learned behavior, or I believe it's a connection back into our psychodynamic construct, which can get kind of higher level vision, but I believe it to be true. I, I work with too many clients that if I say to them, 
this just happened the other day on one of my calls. So I was saying to a woman, she said she couldn't stop thinking about chocolate. And so I said, that's really interesting. Who's the first person that you think of when you think of that chocolate candy bar? And she said, my mom. And I was like, wow, huh? When's the last time you saw your mom? And she's like, actually, I haven't seen her since before the pandemic. And I said, do you miss her? And she was, you know, kind of getting emotional. And she's like, I, I do. I, I really miss her. And I was like, maybe the next time you want the chocolate candy bar, maybe you need to call your mom. Because you see what that is. That's a link. Our brain is so cool, right? You guys know this as addiction specialists. Our brain is so cool that it links people with food. And when we miss that person, it will bring up the memory and trigger that memory of the food. So there's that piece. There's obviously a brain chemistry piece, right? We know certain foods, the ooey gooey foods, right? Like pizza and uh, ice cream brownie sundaes, right? Where the brownie's warm and the ice cream's cold and you get that ooey gooey melt. Well, that triggers dopamine like that. So if you have anxiety and you figure out that a piece of pizza makes you feel less anxious, you're going to go for some pizza. We know it's related to GABA and serotonin. I believe that that's on the back end. I don't believe our brain does that on the front end, meaning that the individual is driven by the emotion, seeks the food, then the brain makes the adjustment neurochemically, so to speak. It goes, oh, we got the pizza, going to change the dopamine. Then we get the feedback. Oh, I feel so much less anxious. This feels so much better emotionally and neurochemically. And now you've made a coupled link and it makes the argument for pizza so much more, so to speak, than just being pizza. That all makes so much sense. What about pain? Do you see an emotional overeating component with people who have chronic pain? I mean, you mentioned this clear correlation between childhood connection of hurting yourself and you get an ice cream cone, but do you ever, do you have clients, and this is a bit of a tangential thing, but do you have clients who eat and it helps their pain or do they recognize that it does? It's interesting because yes, people do feel whether it be physical pain or emotional pain, right? Our brain registers that as pain. It it doesn't necessarily, right? The brain knows pain. It doesn't always necessarily go, oh, this is an emotional pain. Oh, and this is a, <laughs> right? It, it just, and oh, this is a big toe pain. It just goes, I feel pain. That's what it does. And then the amygdala, right? The midbrain lights up and goes, ah, I feel pain. I don't feel good. I feel pain. I don't feel good. And that drives the individual to get something that makes them feel good emotionally and then there is that neurochemical link, right? Could it be the dopamine? Right? Is the pain creating anxiety? Is the, is the pain creating depression? If you look at things like chronic pain, I believe there, I believe, and, and you guys know this probably more than I do, but I believe there's a facet of chronic pain that really leads to depression because there's a hopeless, there's a hopeless component, right? Of like, it's never getting better. I hurt so bad. And there's a depression that comes with that. So then eating carbohydrate-laden foods increases serotonin, right? So for the next 45 minutes, they feel better neurochemically because they've got more serotonin rat like running through their brain. And then of course it plummets and the shame cycle continues. But you know, so yeah, I absolutely see people in chronic pain, whether it's physical or emotional or both, because I, I do believe we under underserve the population with chronic pain in understanding the emotional component. Like I've seen too many people with chronic physical pain, 
and their doctors aren't always asking them or other healthcare practitioners aren't always asking, are you feeling depression too? What, where are your symptoms of anxiety? What else is going on? Because I think a lot of people with chronic pain have those and those lie dormant because we're focused more on the chronic physical pain. So on those same lines, I love this. You covered this really well in one of your podcasts and people just, I'm going to plug your podcast again. People just need to listen to it. But can you just go into a, a little more detail? You talked about the types of different emotional eaters and those kind of neurotransmitters involved and really how you manage it. I was fascinated by that because it makes so much sense. And I'm like, I've been seeing this and, and I'll be honest, Wendy, I'm like, I was not recognizing that. I'm like, yeah, you're so, you're so right. So like the compulsive eaters, you talked about the impulsive eaters and those low energy and high energy emotion eaters, like it, and that ties into this anxiety and depression that we're talking about, but that makes so much sense. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. As I mentioned, I don't, I don't love to diagnose people, so to speak, but I do think when we, when we talk about emotional eating, because so many people think emotional overeating is like this big thing, you know, like, uh, like anorexia, right? Like I've worked with anorexia and bulimia for years and it's an eating disorder. And so people don't get that emotional overeating has certain subdivisions too, realistically, right? So I like to break it down a little bit so people can see that there's actually some categories here and maybe in the category you can find yourself, right? So that you can find a, a line or a pathway home, right? So if I look at that, the, the, we'll look at the compulsive overeater first. If you look at uh, compulsion, right? So the compulsive overeater thinks and thinks and thinks about what they're going to eat and when it's going to happen and what's it going to look like and how it's going to taste. And the, the compulsion is there. A lot of these individuals may have a hard time sleeping at night. So there's night eaters, right, um, that will go to bed and wake up and feel like the food in the pantry is really literally calling them. Like they're just thinking about it and thinking about it. And so there's that compulsion and they feel like they have to complete the compulsion to feel at ease. And there's a whole lot of neurochemistry involved in that whole cycle. And there's a whole lot of emotional tie-ins to that cycle too. Everybody has a little bit of distinct difference, right? But inevitably that whole cycle at the end calms them down and then they can sleep, right? So, and we know this, if you look at things like that, the reality is, is, is that can be a serotonin piece, right? So, because, right, because of the compulsion. So, and that they're generally not getting up and making a steak. They're generally getting up and eating some facet of carbohydrate, which makes total sense that they're doing that. You know, first and foremost, whenever I work with clients or talk to groups, I'm always just like, but before you shame yourself one more time, by the end of today, I'm going to teach you that what you're doing has a purpose and a reason and it makes total sense. Like it makes sense. Your serotonin's low. You've got this compulsion. You want to feel better. You want to go to bed. Who wouldn't? So, so yes, that's how you've been coping. Cool. Let's figure it out now and we'll move forward, right? We don't need to shame ourselves. So that's the first type I looked at, look at. The second type is impulsive overeaters. And so we look at it being impulsive, right? Like these are the people that may be, and again, I don't like diagnosis, but we're going to use it maybe more ADD-like, 
right? Do, do. They're the ones that like walk by something and grab a handful and pop it in their mouth, right? We might call that habit for some people, but I've also seen that nature of impulsivity, right? Oh, I just wanted, I grab it, I put it in my mouth. Or I just want, when I'm driving home from work, I was stressed, I just wanted, I go through the whatever drive-through, I grab two, what, two and three of whatever's and I eat them. It's just, that's what I wanted, that's what I did, right? So it's a little bit more kind of ADD oriented, a little bit more anxiety ridden. And so those people are struggling a little bit more with the dopamine piece, right? So they're going to go more for like the ooey gooey cheeseburger on the way home from work, right? To help them sit in that, you know, impulsivity. And then their brain goes, oh, I feel better. Then you have this combination platter of what I call like the compulsive impulsive overeater, right? And we, and we, you guys know about this probably more than I do. When we look at true addiction, gamblers, sex addicts, you know, alcoholics, right? There's a, there's a compulsion to it of a, I think of it, I think of it, I think of it, and then I can't stop. I just do it. There's right. So this is kind of where the, the emotional overeater can, can display both behaviors. Not all of them are like that, but this is where they can display both. Both behaviors. I thought about it all day long, didn't even realize, but I just did it. And a lot of them don't know. Like they're like done eating and they're like, oh, I didn't, oh, wow, how did I finish those cheeseburgers and fries? I was thinking about, I remember thinking about them all day, but I hardly remember even just getting them. So that's the, that's the combination platter, so to speak. And we see that a lot. I feel like that's probably most close or cl- most closely related to what we're used to understanding with respect to alcoholics and drug addicts and kind of the compulsive impulsive piece. Um, but, and, and then the other two types that I like to talk about with respect to overeating is the lower energy overeaters, right? The ones that are sad or depressed or lonely or grieving. Like those are low energy emotions. People tend to eat different foods with low energy emotions, tends to be a lot more dopamine oriented and a lot more, um, I delve in a lot with this group because this group tends to really want nurturing foods, mashed potatoes that might remind them of their grandmother. Like, so there's a lot in there, right? Like they're nurturing from their grandmother and then also the food related to it, right? So that lower energy and that need for nurturing. And there's a lot of dopamine need in that to help modulate things and sometimes some GABA. Um, And then we've got, you know, and then we've got the anxious overeater or the angry or the stressed overeater. So the high energy emotional eater, right? So these are the people that walk in from work and they're like, oh my God, I can't come down. I can't come down. I can't come down. I'm got, I got to eat something. Or they, conversely, they get mad. I'm so mad at my husband. He did da, 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 da. And I did, before I even knew it, I went and ate blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, okay. And they have to be managed differently because you, you can't, there's so, and it's so interesting. I've worked with so many clients to date that, you know, you read in the magazines or now you Google, right? Now everybody Googles. I used to read in magazines. <laughs> I used to read in textbooks and magazines and now everyone Googles. But, you know, you, you read on Google or magazines, you know, these lists of coping, you know, instead of eating, here's 110 other things that you could do. And first of all, which is way too many to try, but I've worked with so many clients that they're like, you know, I, I tried everything on the list of 110 things you should do besides eating and none of them worked. And I'm like, okay, well, let's figure out why you overeat. And so here, like, here's a good example, right? So somebody is an, like an anxious overeater or an angry overeater, that high energy 
And they read in a magazine or on Google that they should read a book to help them not overeat. Well, they sit down and they are literally revving, you know, and then you open up a book and they're just sitting there and they're like, this isn't working. I'm like, of course it's not working. (laughs) That's not a problem with you. I couldn't do it either. If I was super hyped up about something, you know, anxious, nervous, whatever, angry, and you're going to make me sit down and read, I'm going to tell you you're crazy. So you're not matching the energy with the coping skill. And there's so many people with just a tweak in that so that it can help them to not move into their eating patterns because you just have to match the energy, the energy of the emotion with the energy of the coping skill. And then you actually have a true coping skill. That is so handy. I love that. To me, it was just like, we've been doing this all wrong. Exactly what you said. It's just kind of like, well... It's like when you have someone with low energy emotions, we tell people, yeah, well, go out and take a walk. Well, it's like most of the time, like you said, they need nurturing. They're they're going for nurturing foods and they, that's not what they're looking for. And we're giving people completely wrong advice. I That's why I really love like when you break it into those subcategories. I love that. I love that breakdown that really helps us just kind of look at it a little bit differently. And it helps people also just understand what's happening to them. Because it's be it takes away that just kind of automatic kind of numbing process that's happening. It's just like, yeah, this is what your brain's trying to do. It's trying to numb an uncomfortable emotion. I encounter patients post weight loss surgery who have developed alcohol use disorders. I mean, how often are you seeing kind of this cross addiction? Is this a failure that we are not diagnosing it? prior to the surgery, which some of the studies suggest that, but Mm -hmm. then others do say with particularly like the Rue and Y procedure, they do have threefold increased risk of alcohol use disorder. So it's kind of interesting sometimes the type of procedure it seems to be that we're seeing a higher risk. We're not addressing sometimes the emotional eating eating disordered behavior, then they're going to go on to something else. I I think exactly what you said at the end there is true. If we don't address it one way, the body and the mind is going to find another way. You know, instead of putting a a bandaid on it, let's let's take the bandaid off and really tend to the wound. And and I think not for everyone. I I mean, obviously, there's there's lots of cases of people that have been successful with different facets of bariatric surgery. And there's lots of other individuals who have are struggling with cross addiction because, you know, they went through bariatric surgery and now they can't eat to that dimension. And I really think that little, little known to us, so to speak, but known in eating disorder world for probably a hundred years. And I only say this because I learned this from my girls who I used to counsel in my private practice. But the truth is how you get around gastric bypass is you learn how to do liquids. So they used to overeat on foods and now they're doing milkshakes, right? And so if you're going to do milkshakes, then why wouldn't you do alcohol, right? Because they they realize, oh, I could... I can do liquids and I'm not in pain um, physically, right? And so I've seen cross addiction happen even before and with a lot of clients who don't have gastric bypass surgery, there's a lot of cross addiction between eating and alcoholism. There, there just is. So one stops, you know, girls come out of eating disorder recovery centers and they start drinking and drugging or vice versa, right? They come out of, you know, alcohol recovery or, or, or you know, a drug rehab 
And, and lo and behold, six months later, they're down to 92 pounds because they're not eating. So we see this go back and forth. And I, I believe it's because we don't address the core. What you have, what we have to get to is a core root of what is going on for that individual. And to really ask enough questions before we do an intervention that is difficult to reverse, like gastric bypass of what traumas have you had? What do they look like? How did they affect you? Did you get help for them? And if you did, what was the help? And how did that impact you? I, I don't, I don't think, I think we can do it right. I don't think we have. I don't think we've done enough on the front end. And I've seen too many clients walk out and not know what to do. They go, Oh yeah, I got, I got the diet from the dietitian. And I'm like, but what about the therapy? <laughs> but what, but what about like the real, the trauma therapy? Because if you've, if you've been raped or abused, and it's so not uncommon these days, unfortunately, um, and you feel unworthy from it, and you're not going to get that from your food anymore, where are you going to get that? And if it's not healed, you're going to find a way to show it to the world. And that's what I think I think we haven't done enough on the front end, unfortunately. That is such an, an important point, I think, that you bring up between the trauma and, and especially with food. There was an interesting study, and this was on with from Kaiser Permanente. They found, this was in a medical weight loss clinic, of almost 50% of people reported trauma presenting for treatment. Because mm-hmm. we know the tie-in with trauma and addiction is very high. Yeah. And I think it's underreported because I think people always think of, I think when people hear trauma, they think, oh, I wasn't raped. And I'm like, do you know how many facets of trauma there, you know, or, or, or nobody tried to kill me or, you know, like whatever it is for that individual, they think of the extreme, right? And, And that didn't happen to me. So I don't have trauma, but people don't realize, you know, that you could have a lot of little T's, a lot of small traumas, that can lead to a big trauma, right? Or, or there's other facets of, of trauma. You can be raped in other ways besides someone making you have sex with them, right? I mean, we don't have to go down that road, but it's very, very true. So there's lots of ways that, that women and men are extorted, so to speak, right? And that's trauma and it's body trauma. And when we hold that trauma in our body, we don't, we don't have a choice but to squelch it some way. We don't have a choice but to ease it somehow because it's held in our body. Yeah, it's so true. And I think I think there's correlation between trauma and obesity. Ne- never mind overeating, right? Isn't that yep. right, Wendy? Yes. And that's really fascinating. And I think it's intergenerational. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of reasons why that is true too. And so there's a lot to that. I, that's fascinating. And I, you speak to this, the core of this that we are so behind on not only for eating and overeating and everything that comes beyond that, but for substance use and all addictions too. trauma underlies it. Yeah, I I appreciate that. I I want so much, you know, I feel like I I just turned 50 this year and I've got hopefully 30 to 40 more years to to get the message out more and more because I know there's so many practitioners that care. I just think we, we don't know how to do it. And, you know, and, and we can learn, right? Because I agree with you. So many of my clients that would present over as being overweight. And so many of my clients have gone to weight loss clinic after weight loss clinic after weight loss clinic and have been re-traumatized because there's a traumatic element. You know, I train 22 doctors that are underneath one of my companies. We have a psychological backbone 
to their weight loss clinics. So I train them how, and they, we have assessment forms as to how to look at their emotional eating and how to ask about trauma. And they all have ways to, to field them out to referrals that can help with that. And they recognize that on the front end. So, because yeah, I think we don't, we just think that obesity or overweight, some being overweight has to do with their food choices. It has nothing, stop it. <laughs> it's not about what you eat, it's why. In this day and age, maybe in the early 70s or the 60s where we, we didn't really know, every client I've ever talked to knows, I know I should eat my broccoli. I know I should not eat the cake. It's not the what you eat, it's the why you eat. And if we just started to understand that, we could ask better questions. And then we could lead patients to a better road. It's true. And I, I think providers have good intentions. Absolutely. We just don't, we, two things I, that come to my mind when I think of myself is one, we don't know what to do with the information once we get it. It's, it's scary, right? To deep, to dig mm -hmm. into people's adverse childhood events and adult events and dig into their trauma. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, what do we do with that? I think especially medical providers, we're very A plus B equals C. That's how we were taught. Mm -hmm. And so if we don't have this algorithmic, well, okay, if they have this kind of trauma, this is what you do. And it's not that simple, right? We, we're not taught even, well, we're getting there regarding trauma-informed care as a whole approach, but trauma therapies and what will make this all better, it just seems to be a bit of a deep hole. And so we have to be better at that and learn skills. And I think we have to go outside medicine to learn that. We have to learn from our therapy friends. And I'd be interested to hear how you help people with that, I guess. I'm just postulating how to help people. But what, what do you do? What do you do in your practice once you identify this? So for me, I, I work with it, right? Like that's, that's what I do. So when I identify it, I can work with it. But what I do when I train doctors is I'll say, well, first and foremost, if you are getting, I mean, you guys are in addiction medicine, right? So if you are getting a lot of people where you can identify emotional overeating or an eating disorder, you know, however you want to look at it, there's really quick, easy assessment forms that you can put on your own assessment form so that you can know there's a diagnosis, there's not a diagnosis, ooh, they're close to diagnosis, so that you can see pretty quickly and easily. Then set up referral networks in your community. Like before you even open your doors or if your doors are already open, get out, you know, get out there and get a list of 10 great therapists or healers or, you know, adjunct professionals that really work with this component of food psychology, whether it be, you know, you have a couple that are intensely, you know, working with anorexia, some with bulimia, some with emotional overeating. There isn't a lot of people that do all of them, but finding those that do so that you have that, you have your assessment, then you can identify it. Then you can give the patient the empathy, understanding and awareness that they need to stop shaming themselves, giving them resources, and then plugging them in with a practitioner that can help them. Because it's just about hearing. You know, li listen, we're all humans, right? And the number one thing that we all want is to be seen and heard. And so if your doctor sees you and hears you and says, I get it, I see what you're struggling with, I'm gonna find somebody to help you, it would go miles. It would it would change it would change the paradigm realistically for so many people to be just seen and heard in their pain and then to have somebody help them make that bridge to somebody else that can really help with that piece. I love it. I love it. I think that is so important. And I just 
I love that you said it's not what they're eating. It's why they're eating. That is so true. What else, Wendy, do we need to know? What else haven't we covered? We've gone um, miles, so to speak. I, I think it's I think it's fantastic, though, honestly, that you guys reached out to me because, you know, for 20 years when I was in private practice, I was training therapists and training doctors like one to one and just, you know, they'll call me, they would call me and say, hey, I think I've got someone with anorexia. What do I do? How do how do I talk to her? Right? How do I how do I help her? And then who can I get to her? So so I was doing it one to one. And I, I think it's great that there's an interest for for people for doctors and other healthcare practitioners to to start to rise up to be able to hear this population because this population needs to be heard. We're getting sicker. We're getting bigger. And as we get bigger, we get sicker. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. You know, and, and there's just so much pain there from these men and women that haven't been heard and been on diet after diet after diet and have been shamed by doctor after, you know, I, I doctor after, and I'm not saying it's only doctors that shame them because a lot of times it's husbands and family members and wives and whatever. But, but really, you know, I think, I think we have a chance to change this. And so I'm so glad and honored that you guys asked me to come on to talk about this because my, my hope is that we can make a difference for this population and, and change how they're getting help because it's not, it's not that hard. They just have to be seen. We just have to see them and hear them and then know how to get them help. Everything you said is so true. Everything we've said, what you were saying about women, especially, although men too, who, who seesaw, do you guys have seesaws in this country? You do, right? You, from a substance use disorder to a chemical to a food eating disorder. I've taken care of so many patients like that. When their alcohol use is out of control, their eating is not. And then as they stop drinking, their eating disorder thinking and behavior just kicks in and they start restricting or binging or purging. And just recognizing those patterns, like the pattern Darlene said with alcohol use and gastric bypass, all of those things, we see it so often. And we see our system not responding appropriately either in residential treatment centers. We're not teaching people uh, or, or looking at their root relationship with food. Instead, we reward them with food. You know, the same yeah. thing. And I'm not that food's not rewarding and intrinsically good. It is. And we shouldn't label, you know, food's not good or bad. But I see, and we all see this so commonly when people are trying to get well from something that's really wrecking their life, we almost lead them down a path to emotional eating. Like, you know, we're in mm -hmm. AA and we're going to give you donuts. I mean, I'm not slamming on, I love AA, but almost every treatment program that I know gives their people yeah. unhealthy, copious, carbohydrate, sugar-laden processed foods with high salience. It's like a yep. setup. These are folks who are coming, they have, you know, hyperkatifia, their dopamine is so low, their serotonin is low, and it was setting them up. Absolutely. So. And there is, you know, what's so interesting to me as I look at across the country at all these different recovery centers and eating disorder centers, we don't have a great model to treat the emotional overeaters and to treat the people with cross addiction. People get out in nature and they're hiking and they're connecting and they're learning how to feel their feelings and they're digging in the mud together. You know, there's so much that we could do, I feel like, to help these people heal. And we're we're just not doing it. Yeah, we're like we're we're treating the alcohol, but we're giving them donuts, right? So so then their brain's going, oh, this is great. I get to go here and get donuts. And then they go home and eat donuts. And then, <laughs> right? I, I you know, I don't see 
any place that's rising up that's going, hey, we're going we're gonna to do it. We're going to get to the core root of stuff. We're going to feed you good food. We're going to allow you to feel your feelings. We're going to teach you how to get to the root of your addictive nature and why you have it. And then we're going to teach you about how not to make that go into go into other areas of addiction. I don't, I don't think it's that hard realistically, but we just keep things in the tunnel. We need to open it up because that's what will lead the path realistically. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. Yeah. Agree. I could not agree more. We really struggle to, and I don't know what the solution is here, but well, what about their underlying trauma and anxiety? Well, that's not even touched because that's just way too overwhelming for us. Right, right. I mean, and that's the thing, right? I feel like we spend so much time like keeping them in the, the diagnoses, you know, like, oh, they're opioid, they're, they're, they have an opioid addiction or they have this addiction or they have, they, or they, they have anorexia or they have, and we, and we put them in this bubble. And the truth is, if we just ask them, and figured out what the heck happened to them. What 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 happened? Where did it go wrong? And, and let's help you heal that. Because then you don't have to play these games with all these things. I don't mean games, but you know, like you don't have to grab a pill or not eat or make yourself throw up or or or, or grab a rum and coke. Like if we just started to get to the root of it, and then that became their path, right? Like let's help you heal from the rape. Let's help you heal from the abuse. Let's help, like. That becomes the diagnosis as opposed to you're, you are, you're an opioid addict, right? That's where I think we could actually move my, like we could make magnanimous headway for so many people. That's what's Absolutely. Yeah. I love that you bring this to the table, that it all comes down to trauma and it motivates me to want to become a better trauma provider and be able to address it and really be comfortable with that discomfort of talking to people about what happened to them and how they feel about it. You know, it's, it's hard for us to do, but we need to do better at it. Yeah, absolutely. It's so hard for people these days, right. To, to, because it doesn't ever feel like it fits. Like what, what's wrong with me? I'm not just an opioid addict or I wasn't just human trafficked. Like something, something else happened in order to create that response. It's not that we are the response, right? It's that it's what created the response. Thank you so much, guys, for having me on. Wendy, are there any resources you think all doctors, medical students, residents, PAs, nurse practitioners should have? Should, do you have a book you really like? Do you have anything that you could just refer us to? Yeah, no, great, great question. Thanks for bringing that up. I, I mean, uh, the body knows the score and, and all Peter Levine's work will, will lead you down a road that most doctors are, are unaware of trauma, but Peter Levine stuff in particular, I really, I really, really like. Uh, Dr. Amen, A-M-E-N, does a lot of brain research. He doesn't do food or or addiction, he does a lot of work with anxiety and ADD, but his brain imaging scans are, are amazing. And he talks a lot about addiction and ADD. So he's, he's pretty fantastic as well. And looking at his research on the brain and how that can kind of cross-reference to addiction is wonderful. So I think any and all of those things are fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com.
content of the podcast are for entertainment and education purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from this source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.